You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? All good? All good? Well, this morning I, uh, I want to speak about identity. That's a big buzzword in our society just now, what you identify with, your identity. It's a, it's a big thing, it's a big deal. And lots of people are speaking about it, about what we identify with, and many people are searching for answers and longing for answers with this. Now, I'm not going to be able to answer a lot of questions this morning. I'll probably not touch on a lot of things that you might think about this. Or, but, uh, you know, I really felt that God was impressing on me that we as Christians need to know who we are and that we need to think about this. So I want to encourage you with this this morning. So when I was little, my mom told me that I could be whoever I wanted to be. And it turns out that's actually called identity theft. (laughs) So that's not so good. What does a wasp say when it's having an identity crisis? To be or not to be. I know this isn't a big joke, and I just wanted to, to lighten the mood a bit. So, As I said, this is a buzzword for a generation. This is something that's going around identity. Who am I? The search for purpose and for identity. I to figure myself out, who am I? What do I identify with? And, and we feel like when we, when we figure this out, then we're going to know. We're going to have this incredible confidence. We're going to know who we are, and we'll sort of reach the pinnacle of, I know who I am. Well... That's true, and you know, we tend to sort of use our um, hobbies and our kind of work and our families and maybe even our sexuality or our gender as things are these important factors that we think we're going to reach these pinnacle ideas. And once we've got them set, we're going to know exactly what we're all about and who we are. I identify with this, so you identify me with it, and then it becomes my identity. That's what's going around. What we often find is that there's too much credit put into these things. They're actually aspects of our personality. And I often find that you still feel hollow at the end of it. You know, you you feel like people identify you with that. You know, people might identify me as a woodworker. That's great. But it's actually just part of who I am. It's not my whole identity. I can't just grab onto that and make it my whole identity. These things can be you know, excellent, unique parts of our personality. They are excellent, unique parts of our personality. But when we put too much emphasis on them as our whole purpose or our whole reason uh, for being, then, you know, we still feel unlost, unfulfilled, uh, lost and unfulfilled and unknown sometimes. Yeah, your work, you know, people might say what you work as, that's your identity, you're this, and, and you can adopt that. Or our relationships, you can put so much pressure on a relationship as something that's going to be, you know, fulfill your identity needs and you can still end up feeling alone. Or you can have these perceived perceptions of what, you know, you think people want you to, to be. And so you're searching after that and running after that and it just never comes to anything because it's all fake. You know, Instagram, it's all fake. It's all, you know, you're actually putting pressure on ourselves to, to perform to a certain level, to, to try and look a certain way and then people will think I am this. Do any of you watch nature programs? Yeah? 
we, we love nature programs. So we watch quite a lot of these, like Blue Planet. I don't know if you watch Blue Planet. Yeah. Well, recently we watched one where you get introduced to this octopus. Well, you don't have to get introduced to him. You know, tricks on. But basically, they introduced you to this octopus. And um, as it turns out, octopies or octopuses or whatever, uh, they're, they're extremely intelligent creatures, really intelligent, um, much more than they ever knew before how, how clever these creatures are. And in this, uh, I don't have a picture of it, unfortunately. Well, I wouldn't have worked anyway. So uh, in this, uh, in this uh, series, you start to see this octopus, and he's, he's got a defense mechanism that's been developed, which is that they can change their shape into the shape of other things so that other fish and creatures don't realize exactly what they are. So you'll have to see it. I'll put a link in the WhatsApp after. But basically, he can make himself look like a fish. And he swims along in a weird way that looks like a fish. And he fools everybody. Or he makes himself look like a flat fish and swims along the bottom. And everybody thinks he's like a cuttlefish or something. It's really clever. It's this defense mechanism. So if you've got this mental image of an octopus that's looking like a fish, he looks like something else, but he's not actually that thing. And this is a picture of how many of us feel in day-to-day -day situations. You know, you can go somewhere else, you can go to your work, you can go somewhere else, and you feel almost like you've got to pretend I'm going to take on this other shape while I'm over here, but when I'm over there, I'll take on this other shape. So, Sorry about the actions, not very good. And we may read and understand the truths of who God says we are, but there's this daily pressure to sort of morph us, ourselves into these other ways of being. And in, end up, you can just feel confused. You don't really know who you are. And there's two angles to this. I feel like we're either elevating our character attributes to something that is our whole personality, or we're trying to be something that we're not. So we can be hiding behind these aspects of our personality, you know, trying to be a fish and look like a fish, but when, when we're not actually that thing. These things that are part of us, you know, for the octopus, this is actually something that's good for it, you know, this defense mechanism. But if you just said all the time, you're a, you know, you're a great fish, you can do that really well, you know, that, it's not the true identity, it's not what the thing is. So we can hide behind these things, trying to be a fish all the time when you're actually an octopus. You can take that one home, that's cool. Or we're trying to live up to these expectations, as I said, that we've created of what we think we should be like. I've got to look a certain way. I've got to change my shape. I've got to change my color so that people identify me as something else. We need to know who we are. Otherwise, we can become enslaved to something that we think is going to give us this ultimate value, but it's not. It's just a shadow of what should be. These things they're meant to be parts of our character. They're God-given parts of our character. They're God-glorifying facets of who we are, but we can turn them into idols and we can try and morph them into something, the most important aspect of our lives. In essence, we can end up worshiping them. It's either this lost longing for us to fit in or the elevation of our character to positions of prominence. And we see it around us in society I see this in Christian circles too. I see this in us, that we do the same thing. And as Christians, we are defined by who God says we are. We didn't choose him. He chose us. You might have turned your head in the right direction. That's essentially what we did. 
He was there all along before we decided, and he says he adopts us. We heard it as Graham said earlier, he adopts us. That's a choice, and he tells us who we are, or more importantly, whose we are. So in the same way that when you become a believer, you are part of the body of the church, the body of Christ. You just are part of it. It's not about which one you go to. You just become part of the body of Christ when you become a believer. When we become followers of Christ, the Scriptures say we are sons and daughters. Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And we might have heard this or read this many times in the Bible. I'm sure you've heard this spoken about before. The question is, do we believe this? Do we really believe this? So let's go to Galatians 4. Let's go into the Bible. And uh, I want to listen out for facts and promises as I read this. So Galatians 4, it will come up on the screen in small, small form. So if you're really good at reading, you can try and read that. What I am saying here, this is Paul, Paul's letter to the Galatians. What I am saying here is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. In this part, Paul is talking about how the Jews were entrusted with the truth of God before Jesus came. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, fact. Because you are his sons, gods and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, fact. And since you are his child, God has made you also his heir, promise. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are being, are known by God. Fact. How is, that, how is it that you are turning your back, to, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. So I just want to give a little bit of biblical context to this. Are you still with me here? Bit of biblical context. The Galatians, the gospel message had been polluted. Um, they'd basically been influenced in a way that meant that they were turning away from the truth that they're justified through Jesus back into trying to earn their way to redemption, trying to keep all the law and adhering to all the law and keeping special days in certain ways to try and earn it. And Paul's writing to clarify and to reiterate the truth of the gospel. And he's basically, it's a message about their true identity and what's been won for them. So they were being influenced by these people who were saying that they had to try and adhere to the Old Testament laws in order to be righteous before God. And they were merging that with the gospel into this rule-keeping exercise. And, and Jesus, you know, instead of understanding that Jesus is the only one that could fulfill the law, and summed it up by giving us a new command to love him and to love others. And Paul describes them as being enslaved to these ideas. And one of the things he describes is of them turning back to being a slave. And the whole culture, 
there's a culture of slavery in this time. It's a big deal. It's like electricity for us. That's how infused with society it was. And that's why he's using this language as well, because they understand this language. This means a lot to them. It means slightly different things to us now. It's slightly confusing for us now, because we take it to be something that you're forced into slavery, you're kidnapped and forced into slavery. That's more how we see this. But actually, then, poor people could sell themselves into slavery. It was so infused, you could actually be so poor and deserted that you actually said, it would be better for me to be slave in a household, because they'll probably feed me for what I do there. So that's the kind of culture. They had a culture of this in this time period. And it was a bit like being a terrible paid employee or something, um, or a servant. But you had no rights, no status in the household. So you might be in the household serving, but you had no rights and no status. But you could be redeemed by buying yourself out of the situation, or by somebody else paying the ransom for you to be redeemed. That's where all this redemption wording and language comes from that we use in Christian circles. The language of biblical redemption comes from the culture of slavery there. You were bought at a price. Somebody came along and said, I see you working as a slave. I'm going to give you the money to buy yourself out of this situation and free you. And that's what Jesus did for us. Undeserved freedom, being bought by somebody else at a price. And these terms surrounding slavery, it's grammar that they used regularly in that culture. And it surrounds this idea of your freedom being bought. So the purpose of this text is that Paul's warning against turning away from freedom in Christ and sonship to being slaves again to rules and to trying to earn their redemption. There's a big culture note here as well. There's two camps of people here. There's two types of people. There's those that are slaves and servants uh, and that are not free. They're owned. They've got no honor. They're the lowest rung and they're not valuable. And the second camp is family. Those that have honor within the household, they're valued, they're loved, they're known, they're respected, and they're inheritors. Those are the two kind of camps of people. If you were bought by somebody and freed, you'd end up out on your own anyway. So you might be free, but you're just on your own, you know, out in the world. There's still all these families sharing in estates. So you might be free, but you have nothing. When you're in the family, you share in everything in the household as heirs. And that's Paul's whole point here. The Galatians had repented and they believed in Jesus and they revered him as king of their lives. They're redeemed by Jesus' work on the cross, redeemed from slavery to false gods and idolatry, and they're brought into a place of value and honor as part of God's family and the household of God. And he's telling them, don't turn back to where you were. Don't go back to being slaves. And I think this is relevant to us. I think some people might be tempted to turn back from the truth that they, they know about Jesus that set them free. But what I want to focus on more is whether we really realize that we're sons and daughters in the first place. Whether we really get hold of that. So I want to focus on three points from this text. And the first one is adoption. Chosen. He chooses to adopt you into his family. We can subtly kind of 
build our salvation into something that we've done, you know, by me repenting, by my action. God was there all along. Like I said, we just turned our heads in the right direction by faith in Jesus. But it's His work. He adopts you. He chooses you. Verse 5 says, To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. That's incredible. You generally can't choose to be adopted. You know, if you're old enough, you might have the capacity to agree to it. But if you're in the situation where you want to be adopted, you probably would agree to it. God chose to adopt you. We were slaves and we had no honor, no status, no freedom. The tasks that we were doing would never be done, never complete. But God redeemed us through Jesus' work on the cross that we could be adopted to sonship. And he bought us at a price for that no gain to him. Adopted means adopted. It's like choosing to make somebody legally part of your family. It's saying that I'm going to treat you, I'm going to take you and treat you exactly how I would my natural son or daughter. I'm going to treat you like that. I'm going to love you in the same way. I'm going to care for you in the same way. That is your identity through God, through, through Christ in God. Second point is father. He goes on to say in verse 6, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Slaves couldn't refer to the master of the house like this. If you were a slave in the house, you couldn't say that to the master of the house. That's why this is such a big deal. There's this intimacy about it that only sons and daughters could say that. They could, they're the only ones who could refer to the master of the house like this. And there's also this respect in it that it probably more likely than our, sometimes we make it into a casual sort of daddy translation, but actually the father translation of it in our Bibles is, is pretty accurate because there's something intimate about it and there's something about a bit of awe about it. And that's like God, you know, there's an awe, but there's also an intimacy. Father, being able to call him father, it was a big deal. And, you know, intimacy and respect, two sides there. And it's, yeah, it's perfect for God. It just invokes that closeness and sense of awe at the same time. So because of what God did in adopting us to be his sons and daughters in order that we could approach him, he sent Jesus into our hearts so that we can call out Father. God is holy. If he hadn't sent Jesus into our hearts, we wouldn't be able to say this. We wouldn't be able to approach God like this and say, Father, Father God. It's a huge deal. And his teaching, Jesus teaching about this kind of intimacy with God to his disciples, this is like revolutionary. They would have been blown away by this because even the Jews at that point wouldn't have referred to God. They didn't even say Yahweh's name. It was so holy. So for him to say, say, our Father, it's massive. It's this huge deal. We might have sort of, it might have lost its impact a little bit for us because we think about it so often like that. But it's, it's a huge deal. And all the other cultures at the time were worshipping far-off gods, you know, big, maniacal gods over there somewhere. He's up there, he's over there. The idea of this intimacy where you would be able to call him Father is a huge deal. So Paul's also deliberately using the same Aramaic words that Jesus used to talk to God in Mark 14, 35. Abba. 
when Jesus taught the disciples to say it, it would have been outrageous. But we have this intimacy, the same as what Jesus said, the same way Jesus said it as Abba. We have the same intimacy with the Father. That's what he's saying. This is your identity in God through Christ. Number three is heirs, verse seven. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Boom, it just gets better. This is solid gold stuff. Not only are we adopted from being slaves without honor and without status, and, and he's made us a son, he treats us like that. Not only do we call him father, but we're also heirs. This is incredible truth. This is like life-changing truth here. He's made us alongside Jesus, his actual son, as heirs alongside him to share in everything with him. And it's kind of hard to get your head around it. It's a slightly confusing word too because it usually means that you're going to inherit somebody's stuff when they die as an heir. And uh, I think that's unlikely in God's case. So it can be a little bit confusing. But I'm pretty sure what he means here is that we get to share in everything that he owns, which is everything. We get to share in creation, in, in reign with him. It's incredible. So we can have confidence in the future because we know that there's an inheritance waiting for us. And it's not just something that's coming, it's something that's started. You know, as I said about some of these facts and promises, he says you are sons and daughters. He doesn't say in a far off time you will become. He says you are sons and daughters, not you will be. And I was thinking about the difference in confidence. I was trying to get my head around, what's the picture of this? How do I express this? What's the difference in confidence in a household between a son and a visitor or a servant? What does a son do when he comes into his parents' house? The son opens the fridge. <laughs> Come on, you know it's true. That's what a son does. That's what I do. Sons are always hungry. And they've got a confidence that they're in a place where they're loved, that everything in the fridge is also theirs. <laughs> so they go in there and they make a sandwich. And it's because mum has interest in food in the house. And she's got that interest in food for you. That's how it works. I know I'm only joking, but like, the point I'm making is there's a confident assurance for a son who's loved within the household of value, of intimacy, and of being an heir and of sharing in everything as an inheritance. I don't know if daughters do this, but they're equally included you know, in that. Ian, if you want to go back up now, I'm just going to wrap up. So this is your identity in God through Christ. Sonship, adoption, heirs. What a confidence we can have in life, knowing that God's made a way for us and he's grafted us into his family. And might I add, it's gracious confidence because we didn't do anything to earn this. Know your identity. It's not all the God-given gifts, the things that you're good at, the things that people say about you. Those are all extra gifts that you get. It's not how you look or how you act or your job. Did I say it? It's not even being Andrew the pastor man or preacher man. That's not who I am. I'm a son in the kingdom. This is something I get to do. 
just like my work is something I get to do, it's a privilege and it's something, a gift. It's not who I am. I'm a son. So don't make parts of your character into idols that define your whole identity. And to touch on Paul's point that he's really making to the Galatians, don't go back. Don't go back to slavery. If you already know this, and if you know that this is your identity in God, and that this is what defines you, if you're a son or a daughter, don't go back to being a slave. You can go back if you don't wake up and every day and tell yourself the truth. You'll forget and you'll turn back. We're being bombarded with this on a daily basis. You know, like I said, living up to the expectations that are not even there about something that's on Instagram, but who I could be, the woodworker I could be. It's in your face every day. Why, why would we ever go back? What confidence we can have in life because of this truth. What does a slave do? Earn and keep, enforce duty, slavery, no freedom. What does a son do? Opens the fridge. <laughs> Completely free, able to live with gracious confidence in the family. In verse 8 it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you are that now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Mm -hmm. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Knowing and getting to know God is an amazing part of this life. But ultimately, the most important thing is that we are being known by God. He knows you. If you don't know Jesus today, I'd encourage you to get to know him. Ask him into your heart. You can be free. He paid a price at the cross to buy us. And it's not just that you become free, as I said about a slave, being freed from a household and having nothing. You go into a family, you have an inheritance, you are treated with love as a son or as a daughter. It's a massive deal. Everything good flows from an understanding of the adoption, of the belonging to this, of being chosen and sharing in the love of God and being loved by him as an heir as a son or a daughter. This is your identity in God through Christ. Right. Thank you. Believe it. Identify with that. Your sons and daughters are the King of Kings, so walk in gracious confidence. Amen. Amen. Amen.